Romans, Proverbs chapter 15, and we'll pick up today in verse 18. Proverbs 15, we'll read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll have our Bible study here. Proverbs 15, verse 18, says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. The way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a, wise, but a man of understanding walks straight. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. The path of life leads upward for the wise, that he may keep away from Sheol below. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Bright eyes gladden the heart, and good news puts fat on the bones. He whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that you would instruct us in the fear of the Lord. Lord, knowing that to fear you is to walk in wisdom. Lord, teach us that before we can be honored, Lord, before we can be exalted with Christ, we must first be humbled, Lord, by the knowledge of our own sins, Lord, of the frailty of our current condition, and Lord, that we must plead with you to teach us and to give us understanding. Lord, we admit and confess that on our own we are simple. Lord, we have no wisdom. Lord, we are indeed very foolish people. And Lord, you are the only one who can make us wise into salvation. Lord, you are the only one that can teach us, Lord, how to walk in a proper way. So, Father, we pray that you would instruct us today, Lord, not merely outwardly, but in the inward person. Lord, in the very recesses of our heart. Lord, that we might walk in the pathway of righteousness. And Lord, hate even the garment stained by the flesh. So Lord, be with us today. Teach us and guide us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There, we begin in verse 18, where it says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. When a person has a hot temper, a furious, malicious disposition, this leads to the stirring up of strife, right? Where there is peace and harmony naturally, this one brings strife into the equation. If there's peace in the home, he brings strife into the home. If there's peace in the neighborhood, he brings strife into the neighborhood. If there's peace in the church between brothers, one to the other, this person that stirs up strife continually is always causing discord, causing people who were at peace, who did have harmony, to now be at war with one another. Constant friction and constant Strife, And this is what the hot-tempered man does. One 
who has no control over his passions, over his desires. Lord, whether that be an outburst of anger, whether that be the desire to gossip and slander, right, which many people possess, because it is like a juicy morsel, right, going down whenever we hear some juicy bit of gossip, and they love to talk about and spread these things far and wide. But when that happens, it leads to nothing but constant strife, bickerness, and bickering and fighting. And we ought to reject such types of people, and we should not live in this way. Proverbs 26, 21 says, Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle a strife. Right? Like wood to the fire, it causes it to burn even hotter. So a contentious man when there is strife. Sometimes there is no strife and they create the strife. At other times, maybe there is some dissonance between two people. But when he gets involved, what happens to it? It explodes, right? It makes it even worse. You're like pouring fuel on the fire. In contrast to the one who is slow to anger, calms a dispute. This is what we ought to desire, is to be peacemakers. Those who calm the dispute. There is a blessing in Matthew chapter 5 for those who are peacemakers. And this is how we should behave. We should be slow to anger so that our churlish attitude is not coming into the equation and causing things to be uh, exasperated in a way that is not helpful or beneficial at all, right? When we respond with harshness, with a bitter anger, angry, uh, with an outburst of rage, is that going to quell the strife and the dispute? Or is it only going to make it worse, make it more pronounced? It's just going to cause tempers to flare, and then there's going to be much more sin that is committed. We should have a quiet, peaceable disposition all the time, but especially when there is contention, disputes, disagreements. We must be on guard against these things. 1 Corinthians 13, this is one of the uh, dispositions or one of the virtues attached to love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There, love is not easily provoked. It's not provoked to anger in this, in this way. When a person uh, has these disagreements and disputes, the flesh wants to respond with anger. We feel it welling up within us. But when we are controlled by the Spirit, and when we are being guided by the virtues of love, then we will not be provoked in these situations. And that calm demeanor and response will bring a quelling to the dispute and the strife that is there. It'll help those things instead of causing them to intensify and be worse. Verse 19. The way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Here, the lazy man, right, whatever it is that he needs to do, if he needs to go out and plow his field, if he needs to go out and harvest his grain, if he needs to get up and go to work, he needs to mow his yard, whatever it is that he needs to do, he always finds the way right? It is overgrown with a hedge of thorns. It's very difficult for him to walk in it. And what is his hedge of thorns that keeps him from doing the things that he ought to do? 
It's his own laziness, his slothful attitude. He cannot motivate himself to get up off his lazy bum and go do the things that he needs to do. And so the way, everything that is good and right for him, it's always obstructed by a hedge of thorns because that hedge is his own flesh and his own laziness that keeps him from doing the things that he ought to do. Whether that be his work, his lawful work in this world, by which he provides for himself and his family, or whether that be giving himself to his spiritual duties, like the reading of the Word of God, like prayer, like memorizing Scripture, like coming to church, meditating on the Word of Christ. These things are very difficult tasks for him to to do, because every good thing, right, every way that is good and right, it is blocked by a hedge of thorns for him. His own flesh and his own laziness keeps him from doing what it is that he ought to do. Proverbs chapter 20, Proverbs 20 and verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. He doesn't plow after the autumn, after the time of harvesting, when the ground needs to be turned over so that it can be prepared for the next year, he doesn't do that. And so as a result, he does not have a good harvest, and therefore he has nothing. He's a sluggard. He does not give himself to the work that is needed during the proper season of life. And this is the way it is, both in this world, but also primarily in relation to spiritual duties. People do not give themselves to the work of salvation. Not that we are working for salvation ourselves, but we are to strive for these things in the proper season. And what is the season of salvation? It is the season that we are in now. And, but yet many people are lazy and sluggardly when it comes to the pursuit of spiritual blessings. Therefore, they will not reap a harvest in the life to come. They will instead be beggars who are in need and who will have absolutely nothing. In contrast, the path of the upright is a highway. For the righteous man, walking in the right way, it's like a highway for him. It's, it's uh, easy for him to walk in that way. It's smooth. It's a level plane. It is the highway of holiness. And for the upright man, it is that way because of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ that dwells in him causes him, changes him, so that now those things that are his duties, that are for his spiritual good, these are not burdensome to him, but they are his delights. He loves these things. It is a delight and a desire for him to walk in the pathway of righteousness. And this is what we should pray that God would be doing within us. That our spiritual duties, reading the word of God, that that wouldn't be a burden for us, but it would be something we love to do. Praying, fellowshipping with the saints, right? coming to church, that these would not be chores, that it wouldn't be drudgery in those types of things, but rather that they would be delight and that it would be filled with joy and happiness because this is what we desire to do. Now, of course, in this life, as long as we have the flesh, whenever there is good, whenever we are doing that which is good and right, we always know that evil will lie close at hand. And the flesh will rise up and make those things that should be a delight The flesh makes it difficult for us to do those things. But as we are sanctified, and as we yield to the Spirit, and as the Spirit comes to dominate our life more and more and more, then the path of the upright becomes a highway. It becomes a highway of 
holiness, something that is very pleasant for us, a yoke that is easy, and a burden that is light. Isaiah 35, Isaiah chapter 35 in verse 8, describes this pathway as being a highway of holiness. Isaiah 35 verse 8 says, A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks in that way. There, the highway of holiness. This is what we should desire to be upon. And this is the path of the upright. It is the pathway of holiness. Verse 20, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. A wise son makes a father glad. A father who is a righteous man, right, who is himself a godly man who fears the Lord, if he raises a son and that son walks in his pathway, follows his example, if the faith that resides in that father is also found in that son, and just as the father is committed to living a godly life, so the son also is committed to living a godly life, that will make the father very happy. Right? It will be a delight and a joy for him to have a son who loves and who fears the Lord, who wants to live in godliness, who wants to do those things that are pleasing to God. It will be a great joy and delight, not only to the father, but also to the mother. Both father and mother, whoever is believing, will delight whenever their children, whether sons or daughters, walk in the pathway of righteousness. In Proverbs 10, verse 1, says, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And then also in 23, 24, 23, 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. So there is great rejoicing, happiness, whenever the son or the daughter becomes wise and walks in the fear of the Lord. But whenever that does not happen, but there is foolishness, and a foolish man is a wicked man, an unbelieving man, one who does not have the faith of his father, then this will bring a despising to both father and mother, right? The foolish son despises his mother. When his mother is a righteous woman, and he is a foolish son, then he will despise her for her faith, for her righteousness, for the way that she lives, and the way that her life rebukes his life, right? Shows that he's under the judgment of God. And this is why Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And who does he set at odds one with the other? It is the members of our own household. In this case, it is the son who despises his mother, the mother is righteous, the son is wicked, and because of that, there is enmity and hostility in this relationship when there should be harmony and unity. When the son is wise, there's harmony and unity, but when the son is wicked, there is a despising of the believing parents. Verse 21, folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks upright, walks straight. Folly here is joy to him who lacks sense. And folly is a synonym in the book of Proverbs for sin, right? Folly is sin, it is wickedness, it is unbelief. Whatever is evil is called folly. And folly is joy for the wicked, 
They delight in sin. Sin brings them joy and happiness. This is what they love. They long to commit sins against God. Now, this joy is temporary. It's fleeting. It does not bring any lasting comfort or pleasure. However, because of their flesh and that they are dominated by their flesh, they rejoice, they have joy in committing sins against God. And don't we know people like this? Who look for, they long for the weekend when they can go out and get drunk with their friends, go commit immorality, go to the casinos, go to the bars. This is what they long for. They love and they find great joy and comfort in doing these kinds of things. This is because folly is joy for the wicked. And there are some people who they do evil just out of the pure enjoyment of it. Right? There's not even any reason for them to do these things other than to gratify the own, their own lusts and the desires of their flesh. In Proverbs 10, Proverbs 10 verse 23 says, Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. Just like playing a sport, right, for recreation or for fun, like a normal person. Well, doing wickedness is like a sport to a fool. This is where he gets his pleasure and his comforts from. And then also, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Here, those who walk according to their own appetites, he says their glory is actually their shame. That which they glory in, that which they boast in, is something that they should be ashamed of. And what is it that brings shame to men? It is our own sins. And yet they glory in their sins. We ought not to be like that. But instead, a man of understanding walks straight. A man who has understanding from God, the understanding that comes from the Word of God, the fear of the Lord, this good and proper wisdom, he's not going to walk in the crooked path. He's not going to find joy and delight uh, right in sin. It's not going to be a sport for him to commit sin. Instead, he's going to want to walk in the pathway of uprightness. His joy and delight is in the fear of the Lord and in doing those things that are pleasing to God. And this is what we should pray would be true of us, is that God would make us like that and not like the other. 22, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Without consultation, Plans are frustrated, right? Whenever we are making decisions in this present life, especially when they are weighty decisions, decisions that are going to be very impactful upon our life, we need to seek proper consultation. We need to go to those who are wise, who have been there before, who have wisdom and understanding, seek their wisdom so that we don't make a foolish decision. That way we are making good decisions, decisions that are based upon the wisdom of God. And that is the wisdom that we need. We need to find those who are well equipped in the scriptures so that they can give us counsel from the word of God. This is like it says in Luke 14. Luke chapter 14, 
verse 28. Luke 14, 28. says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Here, without a proper consulting of the situation, the resources, whatever is needed to complete this task, right? you have to sit down and figure out how much money is it going to cost to build this tower. And I need to seek and find out and get the, the proper advice and wisdom that I need so that I can see whether or not I have the resources to do this. Otherwise, I'm going to begin to build this tower. I'm going to get it halfway built. I'm going to run out of resources because I did not make proper plans, and then my plan is going to be frustrated, and then the result is everyone's going to laugh at me. They're going to laugh and say, look at this fool. He started to build this tower, but then he didn't have enough money to complete it. And what good is a half-built tower? It's zero good at all. It doesn't do you any good other than to expose your foolishness and how poorly you planned for this endeavor. Now, ultimately... When Jesus is using this illustration, he's applying it to spiritual realities. And this is where we need consultation mostly. It's in relationship to spiritual truths, in relationship to living a life of wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. So without consultation, the plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Whenever we seek many counselors, now here, Many counselors doesn't mean that we just go out and we find a hundred people and we take a hundred strangers off the street and whatever counsel they tell us, then that's what we're going to go with. Because there are a lot of uh, foolish people out there, right? And what kind of counsel do foolish people give? Foolish counsel. So we don't want many foolish counselors. We want many good counselors. Those who have proven themselves to be wise, to be diligent, to know the word of God. And for the Christian, where are we going to find these people? We're not going to find them in the world. We're going to find them in the church, in the body of Christ. And typically amongst the older, those who are more seasoned, those who have been in the faith longer, the younger ones need to go to the older ones. And that is where they are going to find those with wisdom who can help them make proper good decisions. Because they know the word of God. They also, they've been through life. And they, they know a thing or two about living in this present world. Some of that because they've made mistakes themselves. Things that they regret, things that they wouldn't have done. And then they can tell us, don't do like I did, right? Learn from my mistakes and don't repeat my mistakes. When we have many good counselors, then our plans will succeed. Here, many good ones because of 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 Not all counselors are good ones. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 to 11, we see here that there was a contrast in counselors that Rehoboam was consulting before he made his plans. But he chose the foolish counsel of the young men instead of the wise counsel of the older men. 1 Kings 12, verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders 
when they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put upon us. The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So here, Rehoboam, he sought counsel, but when the elders gave him good counsel, he didn't like it. So then he sought counsel from those who would tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. And he listened to their bad counsel, and the result was the division of his kingdom and a loss of the ten tribes of the north. So we need to find good counselors who will instruct us in the way, and then if they give us good counsel, we need to actually listen to it and do what they tell us to do. 23, a man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. Here, in both regards, both the counselee and the counselor, both the one who is giving the answer and the one who is receiving the answer, it brings joy to both parties. When a man is able to give instruction to others, he's able to help his brothers by giving them counsel, it brings delight to him. It gives him joy. And also the one who receives it, when he hears such a sound and gracious word, it also gives joy to him. An apt answer always results in joy. And delightful is a timely word, a word spoken in a timely manner. At just the right time, when it is most needed, this is the timely word that people need whenever they are in the moment of crisis. And the timely word comes to give them comfort during their time, their time of need. This is when we should be speaking and encouraging one another. This is why the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, that we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As the day approaches, there is need for a timely response, a timely answer, a timely word to be spoken to God's people, to exhort one another to faithfulness, to continuation, to perseverance in the things of God. And when we do this for one another, it brings great joy, both to the one speaking and also to the one who is instructed. Proverbs 25, verse 11, Like apples of gold in settings of silver, is a word spoken in right circumstances. An apple of gold in a setting of silver. Very, very valuable. This is what a word spoken in right circumstance. Whenever some situation arises and someone is able to speak and give wisdom, give understanding for what this situation calls for, understanding from the word of God knows how to rightly explain what God's word and what the will of God expects in this situation, then that is very beneficial to all parties involved, and it will bring great joy to the one who hears it. Verse 24, the path of life leads upward for the wise, that he may keep away from Sheol below. Here, the path of life leads upward to the wise, right? For what is the end of the path of life? Is it not to be in heaven? And often we speak of heaven as being heaven above, 
right? The heavens are above us, and God dwells in the heaven of heavens. He dwells high above us, high and exalted and lifted up. Well, the path of the wise, it leads upward, right? Ultimately, the path of the wise will end and result in eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And as that man ascends upward to God, it will keep him far away from Sheol. And Sheol is often uh, described as being below, right? Sheol that is below us. We don't want to go to hell and we want to go to heaven. So what is the pathway that we need to be on? Here it is the pathway of the wise. It will keep us out of hell and it will find us in our resting place there in heaven. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 to 31, it describes how God gives us strength so that we are like eagles soaring above this present world. Isaiah 40, 29, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This, according to our spiritual vitality, we will be with wings like eagles, able to soar above this present world, above the world, the flesh, and the devil by the strength of God. This will be true of us in this life. We will rise above this present world, but ultimately it will be true of us in the life to come where it will lead us there to heaven, to the everlasting city. Verse 25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud and he will establish the boundary of the widow. Here, those who are proud and haughty, who oftentimes in this present life are the ones who have the largest estates, They seem to have the most security, they have the most riches, they have the most possessions. They are the ones who seem to be in this situation of invincibility. In contrast to a widow, the widow is very vulnerable, very weak. What can she do to defend herself, right? In terms of of, uh, situations, the proud, the rich proud are invincible and the poor widow has nothing by which she can defend herself. She is completely vulnerable and open to abuse and open to being taken advantage of. But what will God do to the proud? He's going to tear their house down, but the widow, he will establish her boundary. In reality, there's a reversal here. The one who is oppressed and vulnerable will be established by God and dwell securely, while the one who seems invincible in insecurity, the proud rich, will be brought down by the Lord. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who is humbled will be exalted. And the widow and orphan are often used as synonyms to describe the believer in this present life. The righteous in this life is equated to a widow or an orphan, because in this life, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, right? This is what it says in Romans uh, chapter 8, that all day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even though that is our situation in this life, God will secure the boundary of the widows, the boundary of the oppressed, the boundary of his children, and we will dwell securely for all eternity while the proud will be torn down. Their houses will be destroyed by God. Sometimes we will see that in this life. He will do it even now in this life, and it will be manifested to us. Such was the case with Haman. 
his house was taken away from him and given to Esther and Mordecai. God stripped it away in this present life, but for sure God will do it in the life to come. Verse 26, evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. This is what the wicked does. In his bed, he plots evil. And then as soon as he rises, he sets his feet to go and do the evil that he has planned, that he has sought to accomplish. So these evil plans, when God sees them in the minds and in the hearts of men, they are an abomination to God. And where do these evil plans originate from? Right? Where are they proceeding from? The evil heart, right, which is the very center of this person's being. Who they are is an evil person, and because they are an evil person, they have evil plans. They're constantly thinking and planning and plotting how to commit sins against God. And that person is an abomination to God, abominable to him. God loathes him. He detests him because he is an evil person. In contrast to pleasant words, pleasant words are pure. Not evil words, but pleasant words. Not evil plans, but pleasant plans. Not an evil, wicked heart, but a pleasant heart, right? One in which the Spirit of God resides. These are those who are pure. They are pure because God's Word has purified them. They've been sanctified by the Word and by the Spirit. Psalm 19, Psalm 19 verse 14 Psalm 19, verse 14, says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here, let my words and my meditations be acceptable in your sight. And what are those things that are acceptable in God's sight? But those words and those meditations that come from His word. When we are meditating and speaking the very words of God, these things are pure in the sight of God, and they are pleasing to the Lord. Verse 27, He who profits illicitly troubles his own house. He who hates bribes will live. Right When there is profit that is illicit, meaning it's sinful, we know that God has established there are lawful means of work, lawful labor that is in this present world, and that we are to give ourselves to good, wholesome, lawful labor. Those things that are good and necessary. And whenever we work in that way, and we grow our estate, and we profit from that labor, then it is pleasing in the sight of God. But we know as well that there are certain kinds of professions and certain kinds of work and industry that are illicit. That people commit sin in order to have gain. And this gain is called here illicit gain. Well, when a person gains in illicit ways, in these sinful ways, he brings trouble to his own house. Ultimately, that house is going to fall, right? Many times these illicit gains are illegal, right? And ultimately they get found out. And when they get found out, then they have to go to the authorities and the authorities are going to find them they're going to arrest them. They're going to throw them into jail. They're going to seize all of their assets, everything that, that, that they have gained. They're going to take all of that away from them. And then their family is going to have nothing. They're going to go from living in this mansion to living in a very meager home because of this illicit gain. 
They thought they were establishing themselves, but instead it brought about their ruin and demise. Now that can happen in this life, but ultimately it will happen in the life to come. It will bring trouble because God will bring all of these deeds out into the open, whether it be thievery, whether it be prostitution, right? Whatever illicit ways that people use in order to gain profit and to build up their own estate, God will bring all these to light on the day of judgment and he will hold men accountable for these things. And it will bring trouble to their households. But then in contrast, he who hates bribes will live. The one who hates a bribe. A bribe is a way of illicit profiteering. Right? Whenever we receive a bribe, right, we are gaining uh, fortune, we are gaining money in this way that is sinful, by promoting lies, right? by manipulating justice for the sake of sordid gain. Right? Justice should be blind. We should not uh, practice and enact justice in the world based upon who can benefit me the most financially. But we ought to do what is good and right. And if it means that we go against the rich and in favor of the poor, then that's what we ought to do. Well, whenever there is a bribe, it perverts justice so that what is true and right is not brought out in this world. Well, the righteous man, he hates a bribe. He hates bribes and he hates any type of illicit profiteering. And he doesn't give himself to those things because he knows it's contrary to the word of God. And he knows that whatever riches he gains in this life, He's not going to take with him to the life to come, but he will have to stand before God and answer for how he conducted himself in this present life. And so he hates a bribe, and therefore he will live. He shows that God is his God, not money. Not money, right? Because God is his God, and because he fears the Lord, and he loves God more than money, this is why he hates a bribe. He will not accept it, even though he would gain money from it. Verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, right? The righteous man, because he fears God, and he knows that whenever someone asks him a question that relates to spiritual things, when it, it relates to truth or to righteousness or to wisdom, Right, This is what we're talking about. He knows that whatever he speaks better conform to the word of God. Because if he says something that contradicts the word of God, then he might be found opposing God. And he does not want to give this man instruction in ways that are false, that are unrighteous, that are not good. So instead of just blabbing out the first thing that comes to his mind, he ponders it. He wants to think about it. He wants to simmer on it and make sure that whatever he tells this man is consistent with the word of God. And this is why it's better. If someone asks you a question and you don't know, it's better to, to say, I don't know. Let me think about it. Let me do some study. Let me talk to some others. And then I'll get back to you. Instead of just saying, well, I'm not really sure, but this is what I think. We shouldn't do that. And that's because the righteous man, he ponders how to answer that there is wisdom in wanting to study and know what does the Bible say about this topic or that topic. And none of us has perfect knowledge. 
right? None of us is able to, at the drop of a hat, speak perfectly and intelligently and biblically on every single topic that the Bible could possibly address. So there is the need for us to ponder, to think about, to study the topic so that we can come to a right understanding of those things. That's what the righteous man does. But what about the fool? The mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. He just says whatever comes to the top of his mind. He thinks or he speaks before he thinks. He just says whatever he wants to say and spews out folly left and right, telling people all sorts of stupid things that are not beneficial, that will not help them and will not teach them the will of God because he doesn't care what God says. He is his own God, and in his mind, everything he says is good and right. Psalm 39. Psalm 39. Here an example of one who knew to guard his lips. Psalm 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. When I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere, fan- is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Here, when he's in the presence of the wicked, he's guarding his mouth because he doesn't want to speak anything in anger. He doesn't want to speak foolishly. When he does open his mouth, he wants God to teach him how transient his own life is so that he doesn't follow in the pathway of these wicked people. He is pondering what it is that he ought to say in the presence of God. 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Here, God is far from the wicked, not meaning that God's presence isn't everywhere. Of course, we know that God's presence is everywhere. So in that sense, God is near to the wicked, but he means it in terms of God's favor, his goodwill, his mercy, his kindness. Right, Those things that are beneficial to men, God's being merciful to men, He is far from the wicked in those things. He's not going to give them good. He's not going to give them kindness, but instead, He will give them His wrath. His favor and goodwill are far from wicked people. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 30. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 says, wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all of my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. 
They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacencies of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. There, he says, they will call, but I won't answer. They will seek diligently, but they will not find me. This because God is far from them, right? Far from them because they want nothing to do with him. Then God will have nothing to do with these wicked people. But the righteous man, he hears his prayer. He is near to those who are poor in spirit, to those who are in trouble, those who are his own. He draws near to them, right? When we call upon him in truth, God is near to us. And when we cry out to him as his children, he hears us and he comes and gives us grace in our time of need. His favor and his goodwill, his kindness, his grace and mercy are for those who love him. And he will be with us, and he will hear us and answer us in our time of need. 30. Bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. Here, bright eyes gladden the heart. When we see pleasant things in this life, right, because of the brightness of the eyes, the brightness of the eyes, the sun, and our ability to see, we see many pleasant things in this life. And when we see pleasant things with our eyes, it gladdens the heart to see a beautiful sunset, to see the mountains, the trees, the flowers, right? These types of things. Whenever you see a loved one that you've been uh, away from for, for many, many years and you see them with your eyes, it brings gladness to your heart. Wasn't this the case in Genesis 46? Whenever Jacob had been separated from Joseph for all of those many years, thinking that he was dead, and then when he saw him, he said, now I can die in peace for his eyes. My eyes have seen my son. I've seen him again. And now he is ready to part in peace. Seeing his son, no doubt brought gladness to his heart. Right, Hearing that his son was alive, that would have given him joy. But to see him with his own eyes brings great gladness to the heart. And this is how it is in this life. But especially spiritually, whenever the heart's the, heart, uh, the eyes of the heart, whenever the eyes of faith are open and we're able to see spiritual mysteries in the word of God that we could not see when we are blind, we see the glory of God in the person of Christ, that brings ultimate gladness to the heart because it results in salvation. Then also, here in verse 30, good news puts fat on the bones. You may be saying, well, you must have had a lot of good news lately, uh, Pastor Jerry, because yes, there is some fat on these bones. And in this case, fat on the bones is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. When we hear the good news, and here the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly it's true when we have good news in this life, we're happy. And when we're happy, we want to celebrate. When we celebrate, we want to eat. And when we eat, we put fat on the bone. Well, also, that's in relation to spiritual things. When we hear the good news of the gospel, when we come to that proper understanding of the things of God, then we want to eat. And as we eat more of the gospel, we're going to want more and more and more. And what will that do to our spiritual being? We'll have fatness on us. We'll be 
uh, wholesome, we'll be healthy, we won't be skinny and sconce in, in that way. This is what we want to be. And this comes through the hearing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, 25. 25, 25. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Cold water to the weary soul. Whenever we are parched and thirsty and we get that cold water, it refreshes us, it livens us, it quickens us in that way. So also when we receive good news. Good news from a distant land. Well, what news is better than the good news of Jesus Christ? And hasn't it come from a distant land? It's come from heaven above, down to us, and it gives good news, and it gives us refreshing in this present life. Verse 31. He whose ears listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. The one who listens to life-giving reproof. Here, this life-giving reproof has to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel is. It is life-giving reproof because it reproves us due to our sin. And it shows us how our sins can be forgiven, right? Sin is our problem, right? And the gospel teaches us of our solution, which is found in Jesus Christ. Well, those who listen to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. And where in this life are the wise found? They're found in the church of Jesus Christ. Those who listen to the gospel, those who become true believers, will dwell with the wise. They will associate and attach themselves to the church of Jesus Christ, to a true church, and then they will be there among those who are wise in this life, And then for all eternity, they will dwell with the wise in the life to come, in heaven. Because no fool will dwell in heaven, but only those who are wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then verse 32. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The one who neglects discipline despises himself. Right? Ultimately, he hates his own soul because he will not listen to the discipline that comes from the Word of God. When God seeks to train him, he resists this discipline, and so he destroys himself. We've been talking about an example of this for many, many weeks in the wilderness generation. When God tested them, when God disciplined them in the wilderness by letting them have thirst, by letting them have hunger, by uh, having them go up and take the land by war. God was disciplining them, testing them to see what was in them. But they rejected the discipline of the Lord. They always murmured against God. And then who did it ultimately destroy? It destroyed themselves because they fell in the wilderness and they did not enter into that promised land. In contrast to the one who listens to reproof, acquires understanding. When we listen and we learn from it, then we gain understanding. Understanding in the nature of God, the nature of man, in the will of God, in how to live a godly and a righteous life. This is what we need. We need to live in that way and not reject and neglect the very discipline of God. Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs 8 verse 36 
or we'll read 35 and 36. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. The one who sins against Christ and his wisdom injures himself, because to hate Christ is to love death. Then finally there, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Here, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. It says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord teaches men the holiness of God, It teaches us of our own sinfulness. It teaches us of salvation through faith in Christ. And it teaches us how we are to serve the Lord after our conversion. This is what the fear of the Lord teaches us. It teaches us the whole sum of true religion, of the word of God, of how it is that we are reconciled to God and how it is that we ought to relate to God both as our creator and our redeemer. And when we learn the fear of the Lord, It is instruction for wisdom. It makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here, the fear of the Lord and humility always go hand in hand. Right? They always go together. It is impossible that someone would have true fear of the Lord without having humility. And that someone would have true humility without the fear of the Lord. They always go together. And we must be humbled before we will be honored. Humility comes before honor, right? Don't we have to have an understanding of our sin before we can be saved, before we can be reconciled to God through Christ? It it necessitates it. How can we repent of sin if we don't understand our sin? How can we be saved if we don't understand the holiness of God in relationship to our sin, the judgment of God in relationship to our sin, how sinful and how evil we are? Before we will be honored with the title as children of God, before we will be honored and lifted up to eternal life, there must first come the humiliation of the knowledge of our own sins, our transgressions against God, and that we are deserving of eternal damnation because of our sin. We must be humbled before we will be exalted. And wasn't this true of Jesus Christ as well? Not that Jesus was humbled because of the knowledge of his sin, but his humiliation by taking on our nature came before his exaltation. He was humbled and then he was exalted. And the same will be true of us. We must first be humbled. We must die with Christ before we will live with him. Humility precedes exaltation. This is the way it is in God's economy, in the way that God has ordained and set things out. We are humbled first, and then the exaltation comes later. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are poor in spirit now, then you will inherit the kingdom of heaven in the life to come. You will be rich in the life to come. And this is as we read earlier from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. The contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was a very proud man. He was one who was exalted in his own mind and in his own eyes. But the tax collector was a very humble man. 
He will not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which of the two went home justified? Well, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. And the truth, the principle that Jesus wants us to know is that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If we seek to exalt ourselves in this life, then God will humble us for all eternity in the life to come. But if we humble ourselves now in this life by admitting and acknowledging our own sins and transgressions against God in the des- that we deserve His wrath against us, then He will exalt us in the life to come and He will grant to us eternal life. This is the wisdom that we need and this is the wisdom that we should seek for and that only God can give us by His Spirit. So let us then pursue this wisdom throughout this week and continue to strive to enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. And I'm going to ask, Bruce, would you mind praying for us today?